All right, you guys. Uh, it's good to see you guys. How are you? So we do have the uh, March 25th date uh, for, now we already did, some of you are like, when's that Marvel? We already got one pretty much done. We actually showed it here and did it in a couple other places, uh, what, about a month and a half ago. That was the overview where we're showing kind of the best of, which is going to be free. Uh, so that's done as far as in the can, but we need to do a presentation. We'll probably do that. I might do it in two different ways. We're going to do it one way where uh, we do it as a podcast with kind of a Q&A, and then we present the overview, kind of like we did here in the fellowship as far as just the, the same clips. Uh, and then I might just put it together, kind of stream it into one thing as well. We'll see what happens with that uh, so people just see it just in order. Uh, but, also, but the one I'm talking about that's new, that's available right now, or will be available, I should say, uh, is on the 25th of uh, this month. So we'll be do showing it here uh, on a, what is that, a Friday night, and there'll be like popcorn, some kinds of refreshments and what have you. It'll blow you away. We just sat down to review it again, uh, the end, just to make sure it was good and everything. And so this kind of Tony's putting the music to it, some final tweaks. So that'll be on the 25th, and that'll also be available to our Patreons that same day, which is really cool. Uh, and then I think about a week or so later, you know, maybe is it the 4th, Chad? Yeah, exactly a week later, we'll make it available uh, to everybody, you know. So if you want to get it digitally, we may not have it at that point on uh, DVD, but you can get it digitally online with code and so forth. So um, it's going to blow your socks off, you know. It really is because it's like eye-popping stuff. And if you'd already seen the other one, the overview of the seven-part series, uh, you already know. And it's got way more than that, of course. So pray about that uh, because that's a big deal. And we really believe a lot of people are going to be saved through that and come to Christ. And a lot of uh, sanctification will take place in the body of Christ, hopefully, as a result of that. And, of course, the enemy is at work. As I speak to you, the enemy is afoot trying to, uh, you know, stop us from ministry. And, he, you know, but uh, we have the full arm of God on, okay? And those who would uh, seek to draw disciples after them in wolves and sheep's clothing uh, will be thwarted by the Lord. And sometimes the judgments come now, and sometimes there's coming hereafter, but their, their days are numbered. The Bible says, mark those who cause division, not according to sound doctrine, amen. So praise God, we have the truth, we stand on the truth, and there's going to be a lot of people are going to be like, man, you're, you're attacking our heroes, you know. These are, we love, hey, and what we're saying, it, it's not a legalistic thing where it's like, you can't ever watch any of these, you know. What it is, is, hey, this is the truth, you know. We're showing you the truth in their own words, and there's a lot of stuff going on that you need to be aware of, because there is a spiritual war afoot, Amen. And do you think the enemy is like, hmm, I'm not going to use Marvel or DC. It has so much influence on the kids, but I have nothing to do with any of the influences there. Wrong. We show you where the top comic writers voted by Comic Book Review, the biggest online fan site uh, uh, online, uh, the top writers that have been voted there, the top two writers out of the top hundred, the top two, both admit practicing Crowleyan satanic, Crowley is a satanist, practicing Crowleyan magic. And writing and being able to write better because they're working with spiritual entities. That's heavy stuff, guys. Right there should, you know, if you're an honest Christian, you'll be like, man, I need to, you know, be aware of what's going on here. Amen. All right. Let's get into the word. This message, I hope, will challenge you. Uh, it's been something that's burned on my heart for some time. The name of the message is called Learning to Love. We'll be back in Revelation 21.7 pretty soon again. But... Every once in a while, I'm going to pop a topical message in because I really believe love is the most important thing that we have as a characteristic of our life, and I believe it's radically lacking in a lot of the professing church, and, and I believe the reasons churches fail often is because they don't have love. 
I believe the reason relationships fail is because, and there's so many divorces, is because there's a lack of love. I believe the reason families disintegrate to the left and to the right and all around us is because there's a lack of love. And love is the super spiritual glue that we need uh, that binds us together uh, with our God. Uh, we're saved by grace through faith, it says, but the Bible says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, faith works through love. You can't have true saving faith unless it's a reliant on the Lord Jesus Christ, a trust. A good synonym for faith is trust. If you're trusting the Lord, and Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, that faith works through love. So it's a loving faith. It's a genuine, it's not a head faith, it's a heart faith where you trust in the Lord for your salvation. And love is key because without love we are, what does the Bible say we are without love? What's that? We're, yeah, we're zero. We're nothing. Amen. And the name of this message is called Learning to Love because you want to make sure you have love, especially in light of what the Bible says in the last days regarding the lack of love and the falling away. And please uh, take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. I mean, think this is how important love is. What's the greatest commandment, guys? What's the greatest commandment? Not the greatest two commandments. What's the greatest commandment? That's right. Amen. In fact, we'll read it right here. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And you might think he would say the first of the Ten Commandments which says in Exodus uh, not to have any gods before the one true God, right? And, well, that's related to the greatest commandment, but look what Jesus says. He says in verse 37, and he said to him, quote, you shall love what? The Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And sometimes it's put that way. In Mark, we read where Jesus says, your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. Verse 38, this is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend what? The whole law and the prophets. The whole law and the prophets hang on those two great commandments. And the greatest of them is to love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, and mind or strength and mind, your whole being, everything you are. That's, that's the greatest commandment. We're supposed to be loving him with everything we are, whole heart, soul, mind, everything. And that is lacking, and the Bible warns that it will be lacking in the last days, and we'll look at that a, a little bit. But I really want to encourage you guys because, uh, you know, when it comes to having successful families and it comes to being a great husband or a great wife or being a great parent or being a, a, a great child, you know, a great neighbor, a, a great brother or sister in Christ, which is the church family. Uh, there has to be a deep love for God for you to be a blessing and for you to actually be blessed the way the Lord wants to bless you. And it comes down to a biblical theodicy. In fact, uh, I mean, it answers, God's love answers the question of theodicy. You know, the thought, theodicy is uh, basically an answer to the problem of evil. Why is there evil in the world? From a theological perspective, from a, a biblical perspective, it's the answer is, is how can God be good and all-wise and all-powerful, right? And there be evil in the world. 
And to answer the questions of theodicy, uh, you know, that, they, that theodicy poses, we have to begin with God and his love and his nature, right? And his power and his wisdom because all those things, see, um, the Ep Epicurus, fourth century or so, I mean, before Christ, he's the one that posed the question. If God is all, basically, I'm just going to give you a paraphrase of it. If God's all powerful, can do anything, he's all, you know, knowing, right? And he, he knows everything and he's truly good. How could he, there be evil in the world? Because if he's all powerful and he's all good, then he would stop the evil from that's, that's in the world. You understand that argument? And if he's all-knowing, of course, he'd know about it. He'd know how to deal with, deal with it. And it sounds like a good argument if you don't have biblical revelation, <laughs> if you don't have the Word of God. By the way, we're almost done. I mean, we're in chapter 21 of 22 chapters in the book of Revelation. And I pose, I posit, I believe the book of Revelation is a theodicy. I believe it's a, a profound, grand theodicy. The most profound ever written. Because it shows forth this all-powerful God, this all-knowing God as all-loving, working all things out for the good in the end. Amen? He creates the best of all worlds to get us to the best of all possible worlds. Does that mean he surveyed every possible world he can make? We don't know that. That goes beyond Scripture. You can speculate and talk about it. I think it's, a, I think it's great to talk about those things. But as far as what we can say, thus saith the Scripture, what we know for sure is that God is a maximal being. There's no being beyond what you can conceive, beyond who God is as he reveals himself, you know? I mean, this God is timeless. This God spoke the universes into existence, amen? That's how he can know things that are not yet. That's how he can know what we would posit as hypothetical or possibilities or, you know, counterfactual even knowledge where it's knowledge that could happen if this didn't happen and that did happen. You know, he knows everything. And we know that from scripture, which we're not going to get into all that because I really want to focus on God's love here and how important it is that we love one another, that we learn to love. But I think when it comes to God's love, I think it answers, God being love answers so many of the questions. Because the Bible defines God's nature as 1 John 4, 8. And then again in 1 John 4, 16, we're told twice, in case we missed it the first time, John tells us God is love. His very nature is love. So before creation ever takes place, God is what? God is love, amen? The Bible also teaches that he's infinitely knowledgeable and infinitely wise, of course. The Bible also teaches uh, that he's the almighty God, amen? He can do anything he wants except uh, evil and that which is logically absurd, like make a married bachelor. Those are mutually exclusive ideas, right? Around square, right? Or a square circle. That's just stupid. That's just an absurdity, okay? And if a round circle could be made, God can make it. <laughs> That's no doubt about that, right? So, because he's almighty. But then how is it that there's evil in the world and where does love factor in? And that needs to be something that we understand because this is something you should be sharing with your children and you should be bringing them up to understand who our God is. Amen? But I love uh, the idea of, you know, God's love and the fact that his love is, he is love, and God is Trinitarian, amen? God's a Trinity. We're Trinitarian. We have Trinitarian love, okay? So before God exists, there's already love that exists between the Father, who? The Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus talks about the love that the Father had for him from the very beginning, before the world was, in John 17, his high priestly prayer. 
Jesus talks about his love for the Father uh, before creation. And we see in the creation, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all involved in the act of creation. Amen? Creates the heavens and the earth. But there's already that Trinitarian love. And love, by the way it's described in Holy Scripture, by biblical revelation, is it's other-orientated. Right? God so loved the world that he, what? Gave. It's other-orientated. It's sacrificial. That's an expression of his, his most profound well, it's not just an attribute of God, it's God's very nature. God is love, right? It's, 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 it's so amazing. So he is love and it's other-orientated. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for. It's sacrificial. It's other-orientated. Aren't you glad that there's, aren't you glad God's a God of love? Could you imagine Allah being God? How does Allah love? Before he creates He's just one singular person. He wouldn't even know what love is because there's no one to love. All he could do would focus on, if he had any love at all, it would be just self-love. And an emphasis on self-love is what we define as narcissism. Those who love themselves too much, well, he'd be the only one to love, so he'd love himself way too much. And that's why you have this strong view of determinism. You don't have much at all in the Quran about Allah's love. And that's why the people that follow him often are so militant. And many of them believe in a very, many Muslims have a very strong view of determinism. That everything's determined, everything you do has been predetermined before it happens. It's not a very loving God, Allah. He's not God. He didn't so love the world to give his only begotten son because Allah is not even a father, you see, that he could have a son. And that's, you know, the Quran was written years and years, hundreds of years after the scripture, and it denies that God is a God who so loved the world that gave his only begotten son because he doesn't have that kind of love and he doesn't even have a son. And he's not a father. You should just, I could just spend time for the rest of this service, I'm not going to do it because I want to get other things, just tripping out with you on what a blessing it is that we weren't only created, right? But we were created by a God who is love. I mean, think of how easy it would be. What if this, this God just wasn't loving and he was sadistic and he got his jollies by tormenting people and then he created you because he wanted to see you tormented for eternity and that's how he got his jollies and he said, I get glory that way. Because I want to predetermine that you, you know, like in Islam. Now, it's interesting. I, I'm, I'm like, thank you, God. I thank you that you are the one true God. Amen? I'm so thankful that I can, so many Americans have to look to the most powerful man on the planet, at least he's claimed, he's claimed he is, to Joe Biden for answers. I'm so glad I don't have to look to him for answers. I'm so glad I could look to the Lord, amen? Who remembers everything? You know? I mean, I mean, hey, I'm getting older, so I know when you get a little bit older, man, my wife and I will look at each other, and sometimes it's like, I told you, I told you. And we're like, that's right, you know? You know? And it reminds me of a story I told at the men's retreat that we asked to do up back east when we flew out there, is, you know, is an older man and a, older woman aging a bit we're both forgetting things a lot 
And they went thinking maybe they had something really wrong with them. And they did the, you know, CAT scans, all that stuff. And the doctor said, there's not a thing wrong with you. You know, you're okay. Just, you're just getting older. And just, you know, it's part of aging. Oh, really? Wow, yeah. Well, I guess we just, it's aging. But what about we just forget things so often now? He goes, yeah, but it might help to just write things down. Just if, you, if, you, if, you're, if you're concerned about forgetting something, just write it down as a reminder. and Just pull it out, your little thing, and remind you, you know. I have little reminders. My wife says, when you go, can you go to Costco and grab this? And sometimes she'll tell me a few things, but I'm like, text them to me or just write them down, you know, when it gets beyond four or five things, you know. And uh, they started to write things down. But after, you know, some time went by, started lapse a little bit and writing things down because uh, they weren't forgetting that much now and they got kind of hang up. And then they were watching the news together and he got up, the, the husband, to go into the kitchen. He's like, yeah, he goes, you know, uh, I'm just going to get a snack. And she goes, hey, wait a minute. Can you get me something? He goes, yeah. She goes, can you get me some vanilla ice cream? She, he goes, yeah, no problem. He starts to watch. She goes, whoa, whoa, wait a second. Don't you think you want to write that down? He's like, no. I think I got the vanilla ice cream, honey. And she's like, okay. Oh, oh, you know what? I'd love you to put some strawberries on top. Oh, okay. Okay. Wait, that's two things. Don't you think you want to write those two things down? Nah, I got it. Oh, how about, oh, wait a second. I want some whipped cream too. Just, that's the last thing I want. Those three things together. Uh, okay, no problem. Wait, honey, please, don't, please just write it down, please, because I know you're going to forget. No, I will not forget. I got this, you know. He goes in the kitchen, comes back 20 minutes later, sticks before her, you know, three sunny side up eggs with some toast. And she's like, see, I knew you'd forget. He goes, what did I forget? She goes, you forgot the bacon. You know, it's like, and that's how I feel like we, we're getting, my wife and I get a little bit sometimes, not that bad, but you know, it's hard to age, you know, and it's part of it. But you know what? The Lord God, he knows everything. He doesn't forget. Oh, wait, wait, he forgets our sin. No, it doesn't say he forgets our sin. He remembers them no more. <laughs> There's a difference. It's not like he can't, doesn't know they happened and he forgot them. He just doesn't revisit them in his divine memory bank to hold them against us as a context there. But he's all-knowing, he's all-loving, he's sacrificial in his love, and he's almighty. And we talked about all those things. But how is it that we have the problem of evil in the world then? And I'm not getting into theodicy here to just get into theodicy. I'm getting into theodicy here for a very, very practical reason. That you can understand where you fit in and how important it is to, that you love him back. Okay? And... God could have simply, because God is love and he's other-orientated, that's the reason you're created. Do you understand that? You're created in his image. Now, you could be created a slug, you know, a cockroach, a lot of things. And I, hopefully if I was a cockroach and a thug, I'd still be, thug, a slug, <laughs> I'd still be grateful to God. <laughs> thug, hopefully I'd be repentant and then grateful to God after I get forgiven. But, uh, but he's a good God. And he made us in his image, I mean, and he's given us dominion over the creatures on the planet, the fish that swim through the sea, the birds that fly through the air, the animals that crawl around the ground. He's given us human's dominion. Our brains are unlike anything else in, 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 this, in this creation of this, of this world that we know of that's, uh, you know, not talking about the corporate world, but the physical material world. It's, it's a proven fact. And we, the animals don't rule us. We're the ones that have the zoos. But we're created in God's image by a God of love. Now, God, did God make us robots? Yes or no? no? Absolutely not. 
We know he didn't make us robots because he gives us commands to follow, amen? He blames us for breaking those commands, amen? We're blameworthy. He punishes us for breaking those commands, right? When you refuse to repent, boom, you're punished. He holds us culpable. He holds us responsible. Response-able. Ever break down that word? Response-able. Able to respond. Because we're able to respond, right, to him and respond to his influence for us to do either good or evil, we are held responsible for our crimes, our sins, our rebellions against God. And once, now this is very easy to understand, I think, once, because God creates us in his image and God is love and he chooses to love us, he doesn't love us by way of necessity, I personally believe that God created us because he chose to, because he is love. But I don't believe he was bound to choose us by way of necessity. I was asked by a gal, awesome gal, and I love it. She's a young gal. She came up afterwards, I don't know, a year ago or so, uh, you know, thinking things through. I love it when people think. And she's like, and she was just very honest. She goes, you know, I have a hard time being as grateful as I think I should be for God sending his son to die for my sins. And she says, since God is a loving God, of course that's what a loving God should do. If he's a God of love, he would send his son to die for us. And since he sent his son to die for us, well, of course he should do that. So it's hard for me to be grateful for that because that's what he should be doing. Interesting argument, huh? But I told her, I said, you got to think it through a little bit more. Because he's a loving God, and he's such a loving God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, he did give his son. But he could have still been the same loving God and chose not to make a world that he knew would fall in the first place. Amen? Because he wasn't caught in a situation because we believe strongly in God's sovereignty. Amen? Okay? Our view of sovereignty here at Blessed Hope Chapel is way beyond the view of, uh, of sovereignty in deterministic uh, expressions of the Christian faith. You know? Our Calvinistic brethren believe that God's sovereign, but he can't know free choices because he doesn't have that kind of knowledge. So everything has to be predetermined. So everything, kind of like Allah, he predetermines everything you do before you exist. You're predetermined. Child rape, you know, child torture, that's all been predetermined by God and the person comes to existence after creation and has to do that because it's scripted by God. Because he, everything that happens is decreed by him. He can't know counterfactuals. You know, we know he knows counterfactuals. We know he knows even hypothetical situations. We know that that's wrong. And my, my favorite example of contingencies or counterfactuals is when David is hiding in Keilah. You remember that? He's hiding from King Saul. King Saul is king. But David has been tapped in the shoulder. Hey, you're going to be the next king. And King Saul wants to kill him because he's getting praised because he's killing not thousands, but tens of thousands, right? Or he's killing of the enemy. And Saul wants him dead. But the people of Keilah receive him and his men. With, they're grateful and they, they provide for him food and shelter. And they're like praising God for David. And then guess what? David says, Lord, is King Saul going to come here? And if he does, will these people who are treating him so good hand me over to them, him? What does the Lord say? Yes, Saul, he's coming. And yes, they're going to hand you over to 
King Saul. Guess what David does? He wisely takes off. Boom, he's gone, right? Huh. And guess what Saul finds out? David's not there anymore. Doesn't show up. What does that show you? Now, David couldn't know that, but guess who does know that? God knows not only what will happen, but he knows what could happen. And I've got, I, I have got a slew of quotes I've, I've kept for the last, I don't know, 20 years or maybe 25, I don't know. Long time, I don't know, maybe less than that. But uh, of every time I see my a Calvinistic brother, scholar, Calvin himself, state that God can't know the future unless he decrees it. That's a weak view. I'm sorry. That's lesser glory to God. That's a weak view of God. And plus, if you have God decreeing everything that happens before we exist, where's the responsibility for sin then? You make God the author of sin. For instance, if I make a robot named Frankie, and he looks so human-like and everything, and it just deceives everybody, and I use that robot to go beat up old women, right? And bludgeon them to death, and he kills all kinds of women, and they finally catch Frankie, and everybody's excited they caught Frankie. And then in the middle of his court appearance, you know, there's a revolt, and he gets shot, and there's no blood. They don't get it. They don't understand it. How come there's no blood in Frankie? And all of a sudden, they like, look at him. He's a robot. And then they find out that Frankie had a chip put in him where he could only do just that. And then they find out that, guess what? It all leads back to me and my remote controls. And they, you know, I would get off because I'm not high tech like that. So I'd get out of it. And I'm like, that was not me. Okay. <laughs> but uh, then who would they arrest? Who would they put in prison? Frankie or me? They put me in prison because I would be the author of the sin, the crimes. And that's why I say Calvinism makes God the author of sin. It does. I'm sorry. It, 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 it gives a less view of sovereignty and it gives a less view of God's character. God is love, amen? And God is almighty. How almighty? That even understands counterfactuals. How could God know things before they take place if they're even hypothetical, if he doesn't decree them? How could God speak the universe into existence with his words? We believe that, right? So I can believe in counterfactual knowledge because thus saith the scriptures in the word of God. And I'm grateful that God is actually far bigger than the popular theologies today that are gaining steam. Don't limit yourself in your understanding of God. In fact, I've found talking to Christians intuitively based, I believe, on the reading of Scripture, if they don't even think this through, and I say to them, I've done this actually recently. I've done this to a few Calvinists actually recently. Do you think God, or Calvinist-leaning people, do you believe God knows everything? Yeah. Yeah, of course he knows everything. Amen. Yeah, he does. I agree 100%. In fact, you would probably agree with me that those who believe in open theism, process theology, who claim that God only knows some things, but not everything, don't give God the glory he deserves. They're like, yeah, well, yeah, because he knows everything. And open theism is growing right now, too. And that's the idea that, yeah, there's free will because God didn't determine everything, but because he, he only knows certain things, he only knows what he's decreed. And I say, do you understand why, and I asked those Calvinists, the few I talked to, do you believe God can know hypotheticals? And guess what they've said to me? All the three last, and I've asked, this is all in the last two weeks. Three different Calvinists. Guess what they've said to me? Or Calvinist-leaning people, I'll call them to a degree. Calvinist-leaning people to a degree, going in or out to one degree or another. 
All three of them said, yeah, he can know hypotheticals. Of course, he can know all possibilities. I said, ooh, you are not a Calvinist then. I go, because you know the process theologians, the open theists who believe God can't, doesn't, can't know everything, therefore he only decrees, you know, can only know what he decrees, but he only decrees some things, but other things he finds out later when they happen. You know those guys? He goes, yeah. I go, well, guess what? And my Calvinist brothers, the, the scholars anyway among them, the, the, the writers and so forth, theologians among them, oftentimes call these open theists heretics because they don't believe God knows everything. Because Calvinists do believe God knows everything. But they believe he knows everything because he's decreed everything. That's the only way he can know everything. So I say, you know those guys that believe God doesn't know everything, only what he's decreed? I go, do you realize that that's the same view of God basically that you have and that Calvin had? How so? Because in Calvinism, the God of, pro, the God of open theism or process theology He's the same God. He only decrees more. He just decrees everything. See, process theologians that believe in open theism are trying to maintain human responsibility, God's character being love, and choice being real. And by doing that, they negate God's foreknowledge, his exhaustive foreknowledge, which is wrong. We believe God can foreknow things, amen, without forcing them to happen. Okay? I can foreknow what my grandchildren will do in certain circumstances. Almost infallibly if you give me certain, if I show certain circumstances. Because I know them that well. But not infallibly, but I'm talking about certain circumstances. If I stick this in front of them and I say, eat it, I know whether they're going to eat it or not. I know because I know my grandkids pretty good. I know if I give black, a piece of black licorice to, uh, or candy to one of my grandchildren. Okay. I almost know for certain they're going to grab it. But I'm not God, so I don't know for certain. But I have a good idea. I could stick that same piece of candy in front of my wife, and I could tell you right now, she's smiling, looking at me, up and down with her face. She, I know exactly what she's going to do. Because I'm so smart? No. Because, but does me knowing what she's going to do make her do it? Absolutely not. You know about the past. It didn't make the past happen. But God can know exactly what's going to happen. If we can know what's going to happen in the future and not force it, how much more can God? Although there's definitely things he's decreed, amen? Like the revolution of the planets and the, the, and the movement of the planets, right? There's, he decreed that Christ is going to come to the world for sure, amen? But he also knows how everybody's going to react in every situation. That's a powerful God. And when we get our brain around, like this is a God revealed in Scripture, that he's almighty, he's all-loving, you know, and he's all-knowing. Well, then whence, from whence comes love? From whence comes evil? Evil comes when God decides to create beings that have choice. Because since love is other-orientated and he wanted to create us in his image and wanted to pour his love out upon us, right? You can't have a relationship, a love relationship with someone unless they what? Reciprocate love or unless they love you back. Are you with me? Husband says, I want to marry, you want, he wants to marry a woman, but she doesn't love him at all. He could put a chip in her. He could make her a Stepford wife. No, he can't really do that. But if he could, it wouldn't really be love. God didn't make us robots. Well, why did God create a world where everybody just obeys everything he, 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 you know, he says? He could have done that easily, but they wouldn't be people. So he couldn't, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't be free moral agents. They wouldn't have the capacity to choose to love him or not. 
We'd just be a bunch of robots if we obeyed 100% all the time. Amen? Do you understand that? We'd just be robots. Would that be a worthy world for God to create? Is that the world that he created here? No. As soon as God wants to share himself with others in a relationship that's a blessing because there's mutual love shared between the two parties, that allows for what? Evil. That allows for people to choose not to love him. When we choose not to love him and obey him, and we choose, because loving God is the greatest commandment, our whole heart, soul, mind, strength, right? And, when we, and loving our neighbors ourselves. As soon as we broach that love, we do the opposite of loving. And when we do the opposite of loving, we do what? We do great harm. We do, that's what sin is. That's what sin is. Listen to Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall love, uh, for this, <laughs> you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. Uh, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love, listen to this, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Catch that? So if I'm perfectly loving God and I'm perfectly loving my neighbor, there's not gonna be any sin in my life at all, period. And if all the world is perfectly loving the God, God, God with their whole heart, soul, strength, mind, and if you do that, you'll be loving your neighbors yourself because... You're loving God like that. Then, you're, of course, you're obeying his commandments. If you love me, obey my commandments. Then you love your neighbor yourself. And if you're doing that, you're not sinning at all. So from whence comes sin, from whence comes evil? A decision not to love. Not to love God with your whole heart, soul, all your strength, all your mind. And as soon as you choose not to love him, you rebel against his, law of, his moral law of love. Amen? And when you re rebel against his moral law of love, you do harm to other people. You do, you do things against God. You either mock his name, you take his name in vain, you don't give him the glory that he deserves, you, you, you do wicked things that he's commanded not to do, you commit sins of commission and omission. Commission is, sin of commission is doing something that God told you not to do. Sin of omission is not doing what he told you to do. The Bible says for a man to know what to do and not to do it, that is sin to him. So there's, so where, where does the problem of evil come from? Not loving, not loving God, not returning the love that he offers to us, not reciprocating love. How does that, that shows you the problem of evil, the root of it, Joe, but how in the world does that answer the question to if God's all-powerful, if God's, God's all-loving, if God's all-knowledgeable and all-wise, how could there be evil in the world? Well, simple. He wanted people to love him. But wait a minute, why did he create just people that would love him? Because it's, I believe, it's my conviction, okay, is that because he made us in his image, a little lower than the angels, we'd be given great power. And guess what? I believe Adam represents humanity. You could have been Luke, could have been Mark, could have been Joe. We all three would have blown it. Adam represented, he was the best we had. If you were going to have one guy play basketball for you in a one-on-one -on -one and your life depended on it, you might go back in history and some of you say Michael Jordan, some of you say LeBron, some of you say someone else maybe.
but you take the best representative you get. Well, guess what? Adam was our representative. And he rebelled against God. And we would have, all of us would have done that. But we're not held responsible for his sin. We're born sinners, but it's not until we choose to sin, Romans 7, 11. Just as like Adam, when he was aware, he was breaking God's law, he broke it, he died. Paul says in Romans 7, 11, that he didn't know what sin was when he was a little baby, when he was growing up, until he became aware and conscious of the law. And then when he broke it, chapter 7, verse 11, and he was aware of it, just like Adam, he said he became aware of, aware of, of the law. And when he broke the law, he says, then I died. That's when he became responsible. That's why we don't baptize little babies. That's why we don't say babies that die in their infancy go to hell, like some theologies do. But we're responsible for our own sin. And we choose to rebel against his moral law. We are choosing not to love him. Well, why did he create people that he knew wouldn't turn to him in the end? Because God is God. I don't stop there. But because, guess what? God doesn't tempt people to do evil. And God gives people choice. And guess what? He let Satan rebel. He could have squished Satan like a bug right when he rebelled, right? He could have chosen not to create Satan in the first place. He did allow evil. You have to deal with that. He did allow evil. But he has that prerogative because he's God. But why does he do that? Because he's not going to tempt anyone. Okay? And people can be drawn away by their own desires, it says in James chapter 1. But guess what? This expedites the process whereby there's fallen spiritual entities, there's fallen human beings, and God could just wipe them out every time they popped up, but he doesn't. Like whack-a-mole, right? No, he doesn't. He just lets them go because guess what? We're in this massive, what I believe is like a sting operation. Where he allows evil to exist. He allows people to tempt people. He allows Satan to tempt people because we're all being tested. And that's clear as day throughout Scripture, which doesn't fit the idea of hardcore determinism. We're all being tested daily to see if we're going to love God or not. That's huge. Very, very important to understand. So he allows evil to exist. Why? Because guess what? This is not, and, and you know, philosophers have pointed out for years now that this isn't, we don't, Christians, we don't say, some do, but they don't say this is the best possible world, period, exclamation point. No, this is the best possible world, which also accounts for allowing the problem of evil, because we're being tested, to bring us to what? The best of all possible worlds, which is the new heaven and the new earth, right? right? Which combines a theodicy of a free will defense along with, you know, God's desire. And you know how I know that to be true? Because I go through the book of Revelation, and you know what I see over and over and over again? The saints proclaiming it, the angels proclaiming it, a voice from heaven proclaiming it, righteous and true are thy judgments, O God. Over and over again, his judgments are declared righteous, declared righteous, declared righteous. And guess what he gets in the end? He gets a bride, right? A bride that has been proven who's gone through the tribulation period. And at the end of the tribulation, right before Christ's second coming in verses seven through nine, it says she's been made ready. And it's been given to her to be clothed in bright, you know, garments, which are the righteousness of the saints. She's proven. And he comes back with those when he catches up the believers and he comes with the armies from heaven. It says they comes back with those who are called, who are chosen and who are faithful. That's who he wants, guys, forever and ever. It's a bummer when people marry someone that's not a faithful person. Well, God's going to eternity with a faithful bride, a corporate group of people made up of those who love God and have chosen to love God and have endured in the end to show their faithfulness. And then guess what? Now he has his bride. And when you read Revelation 21 and chapter 22, which we're in lately, right? What do you see? 
this bride adorned for her husband, right? With him, which decked in jewels. That's how it's described, New Jerusalem, that exists with him forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen? Amen. So for me, when I hear the problem of evil, to me, I love to talk about that subject because I believe we have incredible, I believe the problem of evil, I believe you can't answer it with other theologies. I believe you can't answer it with other, I'm talking about with other isms outside of Christianity. I believe one of our greatest defense for the Christian faith, some believe a weakness for the Christian faith is when you got to deal with the problem of evil. I think, you kidding, man? As a new Christian, I recognized that God was testing to see if I loved him or not. Then I opened the scripture. I'm like, wow, that's what this is all about. But, but he lets us, people go through great suffering. You know what? God has a limit on the amount of suffering people go through. Do you know that? In fact, we go into shock at a certain point. Do you know even believers, he doesn't allow us to be tempted or tested beyond what we're able, but with, we, there's also a way of escape that we may be able to endure it. And I believe the greatest suffering that anyone goes through is nothing compared to what Jesus did when he entered into this world and the suffering that he went through. The infinite God partaking of the wrath of, that everyone deserves on the cross. Amen? And I believe even the suffering that he witnesses because his eyes are so pure that it hurts him more than it hurts the person that suffers. But he's chosen to go through this. I can't prove that last point, by the way. I can't say thus say the scripture, but I can show you where it says he was afflicted in their affliction. I can show you the scripture where Jesus wept and he, sh he shed blood with hematidosis because he was so stressful going to the cross knowing the pain that he would endure. And I believe that makes it clear that he suffered more than any of us. Well, how do you answer the problem of suffering, the cross, and the theodicy of God's love? I call it bride theodicy. Bride, bridegroom theodicy. Let's start bridegroom, bride. Start with the Lord, amen? That he wanted a bride. And now we're being tested. Are we going to love him? And the greatest commandment is that we are called to love him with our whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. How serious is this? 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 21 says this, and 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha. Wow. That's how he ends his letter to the Corinthians. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. This God, who is a God of love, is also a righteous God. So those who rebel against his command to love and are rebels and want to be their own gods and refuse to be thankful for the one who gave them life and used their, their, their voices to blaspheme him or speak against his word, he's going to judge in righteousness and truth because he's sovereign and he's perfectly righteous. Amen? He's holy, holy. He's not just love. He's holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. Galatians or Isaiah chapter 6 and Revelation chapter 4. But you know what? We have to be careful because... You can, be, you can go to church and say, man, I love God. Of course I love God. Here I am at church on a Sunday morning. But the Pharisees claim to love God, but Jesus quoted Isaiah and says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are what? Far from me. Matthew 5, 15, 8. In Titus 1, 16, it speaks of professing Christian believers. It says they profess to know him, but by their works, they deny him. They're living wicked lives. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says, in the last days, it says, terrible times will come. Or the King James, perilous times will come, right? It said men will be lovers of themselves. Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, right? Truthbreakers, false accusers, and incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. 
It's happening today. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness. Many of them claim to be Christians, but deny the power thereof. Their focus is not on love of God. In fact, all these maladies begin with men will be lovers of what? Self. What's taught? What's prized? What's one of the prized teachings in modern psychology? You need to what more? Love yourself more. You need to love yourself more. That's why there's problems with you. You just don't love yourself enough. You need to have more high self-esteem. Do you think those people that are involved in these mob ripoffs where they just get 100 people or whatever and rip off these stores, do you think they think lowly of themselves or highly of themselves? I think they think very highly of themselves. They think more highly of themselves than the people they're ripping off. That's the problem, man. The problem is that we don't love ourselves enough. You know why I know that? Because if our problem was not loving ourselves enough, then Jesus would be wrong when he said, love your neighbors as you what? Love yourself. If I didn't love myself, why would Jesus tell me to love other people like that? Oh, I don't love myself. I hate myself. Eh, love your neighbor just like that, Jesus says. No, he's not saying that because he knows I love myself. He knows that I made sure I brushed my hair before I left. And I put on a shirt that wasn't too wrinkly, you know. I was just trying to get out of there and get it done. Because I, I work on my message till the time I leave. And, uh, and then I work on it when I'm here still, until I get up here. So I look at it as a race to get the best message I could probably ha possibly have for you. And then sometimes I preach for like 25, 30 minutes without looking at my notes because I make things up as I go. Because I've just prayed, Lord, put things on my heart. Hopefully most of it's and all of it's from the Lord, right? But test everything. I always say, you know, test everything that I say because I always want to make sure I'm scripture. And the Bible says a wise man accepts rebuke, but a stupid man doesn't accept correction. But I let you know, only believe that which you see on the page of scripture rightly interpreted. And I try to be so true to scripture. And that's why I'm very, very careful. And I try to have precision in my theology but we well, I need to test everything. But I didn't plan on going so deep into theodicy. I have one word written down, theodicy, on that. And I, between a couple of scriptures I just shared with you. And I think I wrote down Trinitarian love next to it in, when I was driving, you know. So, but I wanted you, you understand how there's evil in the world because God allows people to make a choice. Because to have authentic relationship and not be married and have a bride that's a Stepford wife that's predetermined to love him, guess what? For him to have authentic relationship with Trinitarian love and share that love with others and for them to respond as their image bearers, for an authentic relationship to take place, there has to be choice. But as soon as there's choice, that means there's also choice not to just love him, but there's what? Choice to not love him. Hence the evil in our world. Amen? But God can say, I'm not going to create that world. But no, God says, guess what? I know people are going to love me and I know they can't handle being created in my image because I'm the only perfect, maximal, righteous being and they're not maximal beings, but even giving them some power in my image, they can't handle it because they're not God. But I'm going to give them this anyway, knowing they're going to blow it, even though they're not God, and even though they're going to blow it, I'm going to love them so much and show them my love so much that I'm going to become a man myself and die on the cross and be slaughtered in their place so they can see what real love is. Hallelujah. That's amazing love. I'm going to show them what real love is. And then, guess what? There will be those, and he knows who they will be, who respond to that love. And say, man, I can't believe it. We love him, the Bible says, because he what? First loved us. You say, I can't believe it. He that's forgiven much what? Loves much. That's going to show them who I am, and I'm going to reveal myself to them. And I'm also going to show them that I'm righteous, and that I'm holy, and that I'm pure. And those who reject me and, and spurn me and go the other way and stick their finger in the air, whatever he, however he, you know, guess what? Boom, I'm also going to show that, guess what? I'm a righteous God and I punish that which is evil. Because I'm holy and I'm love. I'm holy, holy, holy. 
And he's love. And now here we are. And now you make a choice. And there's going to be those who go into eternity loving him forever. Not because we are anything, but because of his great grace and giving him son for us. And then us coming to him through faith and realizing we couldn't do it of ourselves. And then him sanctifying us and giving us new hearts, the Bible says. Amen. And if anyone being Christ is a new creation. Amen. And the Bible talks about, I'll give you heart, an off stone, I'll replace it with a heart of flesh. Amen. So he gives us new hearts, right? He gives us a new Deed, get, to do good deeds, not that would never merit salvation, but over and over again, he says, that are pleasing to him. I've been working on a study off and on for a little bit of all these, because a lot of times people, we say, oh, all of our good deeds are filthy rags. Yeah, as far as merit goes, yes. But do you know there's a ton of things that we do in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, it says over and over that are pleasing to him because he's given us new hearts and they're wrought and done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. So when I, you're tempted and you say no to that temptation, right? And you say yes to God, even that's by grace. How's that by grace? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. By grace we're saved through faith, that not of ourselves is the gift of God, not of works as anyone should boast. We're saved by grace through faith, but what about our good works? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There's no temptation that's taking, but that which is common to man. But God is faithful, who with the temptation will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So if you do evil, it's on you. But if you take the way of escape, guess who provided the way of escape? The Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. But guess what? It still pleases God, it says, when you praise him, when you worship him, because that comes out of choice, and he does want a real relationship, not a deterministic relationship, an influence and response relationship. He's only bringing those in the kingdom that bow down to him and say, yes, Lord, I admit I'm a sinner. I'm in rebellion to you. I recognize what your son did for me. I put my faith in him, and you pass from death to life, and then he sanctifies you and makes you more like Christ. Now you're in the heavenly kingdom where no evil can enter in, it says, into the holy city in Revelation 22, 14 and 15. And guess who you're there with? Angels that never fell and human beings that have been redeemed by the blood of Christ who received new hearts and are resurre have resurrected body and have no sinful nature and Satan isn't out there to tempt them anymore and we go into eternity with the Lord and the new heaven and new earth forever and ever Amen. shall they never depart. Amen? Amen? That's a love theodicy. That's the bridegroom bride theodicy. And that's there in Revelation, man. That's how it ends. It's beautiful powerful. Let's go. Let's go. Amen. Let's go, but let us win more at the same time, right? Guys, <laughs> we've got work to do, but yeah, I want to be there as soon as possible as well, Lord, but let me win more. So I'm still way off my notes. Okay. Uh, but anyway, I, I did have those scriptures written down that I quoted to you in uh, that they profess to know, but by their works they deny him. And that scripture, and go to 2 Timothy 3, if you will. 2 Timothy 3. I quoted some of that, but it's powerful because this is a warning. And by the way, I'm not going to make you go to Matthew 24, but in Matthew 24, when Jesus talks about the end times, and he says, you know, there'll be wars, rumors of wars, right? Nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes in various places, false Christ, false prophets, they'll deceive many and so forth. And he says, they'll deliver you up, be killed, and hand you over tribulation, right? You'll be hated by all nations because of my name and so forth. But he says at that time, many will fall away. And he says, the what of many will grow cold. Remember that? The love of the many. In the Greek, it's not the love of many. In the Greek, it's the love of ho, the, the definite article, the many. The love of the many will grow cold. Well, the world doesn't have God's love. I believe he's talking about the people of God. And in 2 Timothy 3, he's talking about those who have a form of godliness. And the Bible warns that you could leave your first love. So in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Verse 1, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. 
For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of God, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid what? Avoid such men as these. In fact, if you jump down to verse 12, look what he says. This doesn't look like uh, huh, kingdom now, does it? It doesn't look like, you know, Christians take over the earth and everybody just loves everybody. It doesn't look like post-millennialism. It looks like the world gets worse, and it very clearly does. In Matthew 24 here, book of Revelation, 2 Thessalonians 2, the book of Daniel, many other prophecies. Verse 12, indeed, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will what? Will be persecuted. That's part of the test. You want to be as bright or not? You're going to accept persecution. You might even lose your, your head, right? But evil men and impostors will what? Proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's what's going to happen in the world. But what does all this begin with? Go back to verse 1. What's the beginning of this? But realize this. In the last days, difficult times will come. Verse 2. For men will be what? Lovers of self. It all begins with a love of self. First thing on the list. Verse 2. Lovers of, men will be lovers of self. And because they love themselves so much, they love money. They do the smash and grab right? Let's go take everybody else's goods because it's about me. They're boastful. You like your average rap and hip-hop song. It's all about me. You think those rappers that are singing it's all about them lack self-love? You need to love yourself more. Okay, I'll write a song about how I love myself even more now. Give me a break, man. Arrogant. <laughs> Revilers. Disobedient parents. One of those Greek words, translated, uh, this translation is translated proud in the King James. Uh, Thayer's Greek lexicon described, defines it as showing one's self above others with an overwhelming estimate of one's means or merits, disposing others or even treating them with contempt, haughty. Most criminals that are in prison right now are there because they put themselves before someone else. Not because they didn't think highly of themselves. Some years ago, right here in this state of California, there was a California task force, the California Task Force to Promote Self-Esteem and Personal and Social Responsibility. They threw nearly a million dollars at it, like three-quarters of a million dollars at this task force. And their mission statement, it was made up of like seven professors to study on why we, how we need more self-esteem and to prove that that's the answer. We need to love ourselves more. We need to esteem ourselves more highly. And then the crime rates would drop in California. Ooh, that didn't happen. The mission statement of the task force is as follows, quote, seek to determine whether self-esteem and personal and social responsibility are the keys to unlocking the secrets of healthy human development so that we can get to the roots of the development effective and develop effective solutions for major social problems and to develop and provide for every Californian the latest knowledge of the practices regarding the significance of self-esteem and personal and social responsibility. Wow. So... They wanted to study this relationship between self-esteem and personal responsibility and so forth, esteeming that. Uh, so what they studied was six things, crime, violence, and recidivism, number one. Then alcohol and drug abuse. Then welfare dependency, teenage pregnancy, child and spousal abuse, children failing to learn in school. Wow. And when they got this done, all the professors did the studies, and one of the professors, his job was just to write the results. Guess what they found? Guess what they found? It was summed up in the San Francisco Examiner by David L. Kirk, who wrote this. That scholarly tome, after it was published, 
The social importance of self-esteem summarizes all the research on the subject in the studifying, boring prose of wannabe scientists. Save yourself the 40 bucks for the book, the book's cost, and head straight for the conclusion. Quote, well, he gives a conclusion. There is precious little evidence that self-esteem is a cause of social ills. We could have saved the state of California almost a million bucks, guys. In fact, extensive studies done by Professor Roy Bumeister and other studies that have come since that time show that self-esteem, high self-estimation of yourself, is linked to greater crime, greater social problems. In fact, uh, in Case Western Reserve, of, he's a, uh, a professor of uh, Case Western Reserve University, uh, he concluded, quote, of one of these studies, or these studies, quote, that people with high self-esteem tend to have low self-control. Criminals, he also discovered, do not suffer from low self-esteem. Wow. In fact, think about it. You know, they interviewed college professors, and they said, where would you put yourself on a spectrum of all the other college professors as far as your, your ability as a college professor, the way you perform, and so forth? And it was about 90% said, I'm over 50%, I'm the higher bracket. 88%, almost, almost 90%. You can't, it can't be 90%. It has to be, here's 1 to 100, it's got to be 50 below 50, and 50 above 50%. But guess what? A survey of 800,000 high school students asked about their average, about their social skills. Do you put them above average or below average? Where do you put your social skills? Above average or below average? So you ask your average teenager, hey, how's your social skills compared to other people on social media and so forth? And guess what? 99% of them said above average. You can't, you have to have 50% below 50 and 50 above if it's going to be an average thing, right? Oh, and by the way, 25% of them put themselves in the highest percentile, 1%. They marked on the top percent. That's a quarter of the teenagers out of the 800,000 they interviewed. Do you think our country struggles from low self-esteem? Oh, and by the way, some years ago, I quoted this, test, this study years ago where you said, I am good at math, you know, and you, to see what self-esteem you had. And guess what? The Japanese had the lowest saying, I'm good at math. The Americans had the highest, I am good at math. Americans, their performances were among the worst, if not the worst, and the Japanese were the best but they had the lowest self-esteem regarding being good at math. <laughs> Guys, this is, to me, uh, pretty, pretty eye-opening uh, stuff. So, you know, we think of ourselves more highly than the yacht. Even if you have some talents, you're not God. It's like the story of Superman, you know, or not Superman, the story of Muhammad Ali walking around an airplane refusing to sit down and the store is saying, can you please sit down because we're required to have everybody sit down and put your seatbelt on? And he didn't listen. As the story goes, she said, again, you know, you need to sit down and put your seatbelt on. It's required on this airline. And he said, Superman don't need no uh, seatbelt. And she said, Superman doesn't need an airplane, you know, either, right? So go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. First Corinthians chapter 13. Now, Paul says, if I speak, in verse 1, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have what? Become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
So without love, man, you're just a bunch of noise, and I'm just a bunch of noise. And in 1 Corinthians 13, we keep reading it. It's, it's pretty heavy because it's talk about convicting. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have them all faith so as, not to, or so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am what? I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, right? A lot of Muslims have done that, second part there. But do not have love, it profits me nothing. Because a lot of them are doing it because they want 72 virgins. Which, by the way, a German scholar went to the original, it's not 72 Germans or Germans. 70 German scholars said 72 virgins. It's in the original. He was led to believe through his study that it means 72 raisins is what you get. And they just don't understand it's just raisins. But you don't even get 72 raisins if you kill a bunch of people and call yourself a martyr. You get endless eternity separated from God and hell. Verse 4. Love is what? Patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's Trinitarian love. It comes from the Lord. Amen. He shares his love with us where he seeks the other. It's not provoked. Does not take into account wrong, a wrong suffered. That's why God, being perfectly righteous, sought to forgive us through the sacrifice that he gave on the cross. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with truth with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Verse 8, love never what? Love never fails. Go to verse 13. But now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is what? The greatest of these is love. Wow. The greatest of these is love. You guys, without love, it says we're nothing. Now you can put Jesus' name in there, right? Instead of love. You'll say, wow, that fits pretty good, right? He's perfect love, fits perfectly for him. But for us, if you put your name in there, we say, Johnny, Joey, I don't use Frankie again, I'll use Frankie, you know, Marky is patient and, all, and so forth. Then we see our shortcomings that we need to grow. And Mark's a very patient guy, but, uh, you know, and so is Johnny. Okay, but guess what? We need to grow in these things. And we need to walk in love. And I did a message, which I'm not repeating the stuff from that message here, but I'm going to update it because it was the one message, because the batteries ran out, that we did in the men's retreat that we did up back east a few weeks ago. Uh, not, the, not our men's retreat, but somebody else's men's retreat we did for them. It was a glorious time with great brothers there. I did it on leaving your first love. I'm not covering that material now. But that got cut off halfway through my message or so. Um, maybe it was two-thirds. So I'm going I'm to do that message again so it's all on tape. But it'll be a condensed version because it was, a, I think, like a two-hour message or something, you know. So I'll at least preach more of the back end of that message. Uh, but you guys, this is what blows me away. This is how powerful God is. This is what, if I was to ask you what the greatest chapter that describes God's love is in all the Bible, most people, and this is quoted at weddings over and over again, would point to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he contrasts those, he talks about having not love, but you have, you can speak in the tongues of men and of angels, right? You can understand all mysteries, have all knowledge. Man, you have like the gifts of spirit, I mean like beyond, because now it's tongues of men and angels and it's having all knowledge, all, understand all mysteries. You have all that, but you don't have love, you're what? You're nothing. But notice the context here. 
is he's contrasting it with the tongues of men and of angels. What was he talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12? What's that chapter all about before you get to 13? It's all about the what of the Spirit? The gifts of the Spirit, amen? Not the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. And then when you go to 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians 14, what's that all about? All about the gifts of the Spirit. In fact, if you were to say, what are the two chapters that talk about the gifts of the Spirit more than any other chapters in the Bible? You would probably be just in saying 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Interesting. This is fascinating to me. Because the high priest, who's the high priest in the Old Testament? There was a number of them, but who was the first one? Remember? He was related to Moses. His name is Aaron, right? And there was a high priestly vestment, right? And he represented, he was a picture of Jesus, who is called the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, right? And he alone could go to the Holy Holies. But he also represented us, amen, because he would go in to offer the sacrifice once a year on the Day of Atonement in the Holy Holies, right? What did he wear? I mean, he wore 12 jewels across his heart, which represented the 12 tribes of Israel. That's the love he has for his people, amen? That's a picture of Jesus, amen? But you know, there's all kinds of things about his vestment that are a picture of this love theodicy that we're talking about, not just wearing them over his heart. And, not, and the high priest would offer up sacrifice for the sins of the people, but those sacrifices couldn't take away sins until the ultimate high priest came, the God-man, Jesus, amen? He offered up himself for all of us, amen? Now, what did he wear? Just down to the very colors. I can't wait. I'm going to get into the colors. I've had a message ready for three or four years now on the colors of the veil and the colors of his vestment and the colors of the pomegranates and all that, which I don't, can't get into here. And it just blows me away every time I think about it. I'm like, I've got to share that message. Maybe this Resurrection Sunday, because it was supposed to be a Resurrection Sunday when I came back to Israel. So it was whenever I went to Israel last and I came back, I was like, man, I didn't preach in Israel either. I was saving it for here. And I had another resurrection message. It burned on my heart too. So that one's been waiting. But I want to say this. One of the things he would wear was a belt. And the belt had golden bells around it, right? And when he walked up, it was melodic. He'd walk up to the temple. You'd hear the high priest's activity. There would be this melodious sound. Beautiful. And that's a picture of the Lord, by the way. Zephaniah chapter 3 actually says that the Lord is a musical. It's very musical. He sings over his people. And we just did a podcast and I asked Chad, do you know what his voice sounds like? Have you heard his voice? It's kind of a trick question, but Chad got it right. He goes, well, I haven't heard it, but it, sounds, it says like many waters. I go, good, that's right, man. He's got an incredible voice. He sings over us. But guess what? That's a picture. He's, he, he wants us to worship him. He loves us and we're to love him back. And it's going to be very musical in heaven for all eternity. It's not just us worshiping God. We're going to hear him singing. You ever hear someone who can sing just, it's amazing. You're just like, I got to hear that again. That's just stunning. That's nothing. Okay. You know, that's nothing compared to what God's going to sound like. Okay. Because he's, he's perfect. Amen. Can you hear Jesus singing, man, with his nails and prints? And, and even you're going to sing good because you're going to have a resurrected voice. Amen. I know you're singing, but what does it say in the Bible? It says there's no pain in the Bible in heaven. Right. <laughs> So since there's no pain, that means you're not going to be singing horrible, okay? It always be like, oh, man, you know? And I believe it all sounds good to the Lord anyway if it's from the heart because when my grandkids sing and my kids sing when they were younger, you know, they still sing today. But it's beautiful to you because you see their heart, right? But guess what? Interspersed between each, those, those bells, they represented service, man. He's working for, he's doing the work of the Lord, You'd hear him. There was no furniture in the temple. He couldn't sit down. He'd just be hearing that music, that sound. 
Oh, and you know what? People say, you know what that was for? That was so if you didn't hear him working, they had a, and he got killed in the Holy of Holies. There was a large rope that they pulled him out because he was, he would die. And God said, I don't take him. I can't find that. I still haven't. I've been look, I've looked for it. I can't find that anywhere in history where they had a rope on his leg. It's interesting. It's possible. Probably not probable. It never mentions a rope in the Bible and extra biblical literature outside the Bible at those times. It's just interesting. Why did he have the golden bells? Because God is a musical being and it shows forth his work and it shows who he is. But interspersed between each bell, it wasn't just bell, 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 bell. It was bell, something else. Then bell, something else. Bell, it was a pomegranate. Pomegranate is a fruit. Amen. And according to Alfred Edersheim, that great Messian, a Jewish scholar who died some years back, he wrote you know, the, on Messiah, Jesus, a lot about Jesus being the Messiah. He said, if the pomegranates weren't interspersed between the bells, you would just have noise. If you didn't have the fruit. We can't just have noise. And the Lord did say, and I'll say this much about what he said to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. He said, I know that works, you know. He says, he goes, you know, you test those who say they are apostles and are not, and you found them liars. That's a good thing, he says. You hate the deeds of Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You know, he gives them high marks for testing things and, and being theologically astute. He says, but I have somewhat against you because thou hast what? Left thy first love. They, they're dotting their I's and crossing their theological T's. They've got the bells going, man. They're serving. But guess what? They've gotten away from their first love. They don't have the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is what? What's the first thing mentioned in the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5, through 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, joy, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness. And by the way, it doesn't say fruit. It's not plural. It's like a conglomeration. Like when you pick a bunch of grapes off, you got them all together. It's like that. But it starts with what? Love. And when you have love, all the other stuff comes, the patience. Because if you're loving, you're also what? Paul says love is patient. Amen. So the key, you guys, is walking in love toward your children, toward your spouse, toward God. Oh, and by the way, you know where the two bells are in the New Testament? The two biggest bells, service, the service of our high priest? 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14. Those are the gifts of the Spirit. Those are the bells, the activity in the church. Oh, but you have these two bells. What do you have in between chapter 12 and 14, those two, those two bells? You have what? Chapter 13, which is the greatest love chapter in the Bible. You have the pomegranate. The pomegranates all over, not just in between or spurs, but there was pomegranates investment. The highest, you went to the pinnacle of the temple, you went to the top of the temple, guess what you see? A big a pomegranate. That's the Lord saying, the greatest of these is love, I believe. Amen? What we should be seeking after as believers is to keep the greatest commandment, love God with our whole heart. Amen? Our whole soul all of our strength, all of our mind. How do we grow in love? It's not that hard. How, how could you say that? Because it's just simply looking to Jesus. The Bible says that we become like what we worship. Those who worship idols, it says, will become like them. But the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that if we look to the Lord, it says we're transformed from glory to glory into his image. And since Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And we, since the God, Bible says God is love, if we look to Jesus, we become more like Jesus. Amen? We don't go to the Bible to say, how can I win a theological debate? 
God's word, the Bible says knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Can understand all, have all knowledge, all, all, understand all mysteries, have not love, you're nothing. We go to God's word to learn so we can grow in knowledge of how to love him more, amen? And how to love one another more. And how to love our enemies as Christ loves. But Jesus said, you want to be like your father, the most high God? Luke chapter 6, 7. He said, you want to be like him? He said, love your enemies because he loved his enemies. That's love, man. He says, if you just love your own families, he goes, what better are you than the Gentiles? They do that. The pagans love their own families, many of them, right? But he wants us to go farther. He wants us to love our enemies. That is agape love. That is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's alien to this world. It can only be manifested through the fruit of the Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit living in you. So if I look to the cross, okay, check this out. It's, it's this simple, guys. And I hate to use the word simple to make it simpler than it is, but I want everybody to understand that you have no excuse. I have no excuse. We should be growing in love. How do we do it? Well, first of all, we recognize that God is love and that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes should not perish but have everlasting love. We recognize that we have sinned radically against it by not walking in love. We've committed criminal acts against heaven, amen, and against God, and we deserve hell. But he came and took our penalty in our place, amen, a substitutionary vicarious atonement. He died in your place, amen. So when I look to what he did, I'm like, what in the world? That's a profound love. We know this, that Jesus, that Jesus died for our sins, it says in 1 John, amen. The Bible talks about this love that's unheard of in the world in Romans chapter 5, around verse 8, right? Somebody might give themselves for a, a righteous person, but he get, while we were yet sinners, he died for us, amen? He died for the criminals. He died for the ones that killed his son. That's an amazing amount of love. Well, guess what? We love him, it says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love him because what? He first loved us. So I look to the cross. I look to Jesus. I look at his love. And then I look at what he said also in Luke. He that is forgiven much, what? loves much. I recognize how much I've been forgiven. I don't try to candy coat my sin. I see it as the wickedness that it really is. And I realize how much I've been forgiven. I love much. Amen? So you look to Jesus. You look to his nature. You look to who he is. You look to his grace. You look to his love. You look to his mercy. You look for what? You look to the cross and what he's done for you. And then guess what you do? You pray. Pray? Yeah. Because the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 Pray that we grow in our knowledge of the Lord and that we comprehend the height and depth and width and length of God's love for us in Christ Jesus. So the more I comprehend how much he loves me, guess what? The more I want to love him back, amen? You cannot look to Jesus and seek him and see who he is and have a right heart and not grow in your love to him. And I could talk about going back to your first love and what that means and everything, but that's, that's another study. Maybe this is learning how to love part one, and later we'll get into returning to your first love because there's a lot of things that are so powerful about doing that. But brothers and sisters, man, Paul prayed that we be filled with the fullness of his spirit, Ephesians 3. Woo! Well, the fruit of the spirit is what? Love. Amen? You guys, the world is going to grate against you. The enemy is going to tempt you. When you fall short and you're disciplined by the Lord so you might learn holiness, amen, and grow in holiness without holiness, no one sees the Lord, the enemy's going to tempt you to become bitter at God. It goes on to say that, talk about those who fail the love of God because a root of bitterness springs up and they fail, the they fail the grace of God. Don't allow bitterness to take over your heart. Don't allow the enemy to take you captive to where he makes you in his image. 
and you become wicked and evil, make sure your heart stays in love with Jesus. Amen. Curses everyone who does not love the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Maranatha, Lord, come. Paul, at the end of Ephesians, talked about having a love, having an undying love. Amen. Brothers and sisters, there's going to be, I'm, I'm challenging you before we do communion. I'm challenging you right now. I'm challenging you. The Bible says, you know why love's going to grow cold? It says, Jesus said it, told us why. Lawlessness will increase and the love of many will grow cold. Because lawlessness increases, the love of many grows cold. Lawlessness is increasing around here, amen? We get frustrated with those who don't care about others and don't love others, amen? It hurts our hearts. We get frustrated with the media, the mainstream media who fans the flames. We get, we get frustrated with liberal legislators who just slap people on the hand after they molest a bunch of kids and let them out to molest more and then put, slap them on the hand and let them out six months later to, to kill other kids. And, we, and it just gets, you know what, I, I, I can talk to you about this because it burns me up inside too. It hurts my heart. And my tendency is like, that's wrong. But I have to remember, wow, he had mercy on me. And I have to be patient with him because Joe, you were so blind before you were a Christian. You were so blind to who Christ was and his love and righteousness. I'd probably be a flaming liberal right now, internet troll, hiding in my basement somewhere, right against Christians, if I didn't come to Christ by his grace. And Paul says, and I close with this, it's in Titus chapter 3, he, uh, he says to remember where you were from. Remember that, you know, that you once were maligning God. You were once doing those things. And the love of God, which has appeared all human humanity, all mankind, have that love. So, as the enemy tries to get you angry because he's like, man, I can't get him doing those lawless things, but I can get him to become a bitter, angry person. And I'm telling you right now, if you watch conservative news that's without Christ over and over and over again, where they're just angry and they have no answers, they don't know the love of Christ, they don't know God's plan, you're going to become like them. I'm not saying not to be informed and you can't listen to conservative news, but make sure you spend more time in God's word, amen? More time in prayer, more time seeking the Lord instead of listening to non-believers who tell you what's wrong with the world where you agree with what they're saying but they don't have the solution and they're not pointing to Jesus. So be careful you don't listen to too much of that, amen? Because I'd be a hypocrite if I said, you can't listen to any of that at all because I'll go down the road, I'll listen to conservative news sometimes. Okay, I'll turn it on, you know, and sometimes these guys claim to be Christians, sometimes they don't. But I'll turn on to a degree, but guess what? I'm spending most of my time in God's word. You don't want to get out of balance, amen? Let's pass out the cup and let's pass out the bread. Can everybody please stand?